Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Business of Film. This is episode number 47. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. Today on the show, we've got uh, the senior VP of Business and Legal Affairs from Entertainment One. Fun episode. His name is Richard Ripkowski. He's been in the business now for well over a decade. He's seen tons of contracts, very educated on the market distribution contracts. Uh, we try and cover a lot of ground in this episode, so I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, and for those who are listening, if you're enjoying uh, the Business of Film podcast, uh, it would be super awesome and appreciated just to drop us a note on iTunes. Uh, leave a review. Let us know what you think. It's always very helpful. We want to hear from you. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any questions. And uh, let us know if there's anybody that you want us to speak with. And we'll get that all on the show for you. So uh, here we go with episode number 47, Richard Ripkowski. Well, well, welcome to the show. You, you are now officially on Business of Film. Thank you for coming on the show, Richard. Great. My pleasure, Jesse. Hey, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? I've known you for about a decade, but our listeners have no idea. Or if they do, they should. So let us know a little bit about Richard Ripkowski. Sure. Um, well, my name is Richard Ripkowski. Uh, I'm currently the uh, Senior Vice President of Business and Legal Affairs at Entertainment One. Uh, overseeing business and legal affairs for our North American distribution operation. Um, I started out it's about 12 years ago, I guess I started out when I got my VCR when I was in the 80s, when I fell in love with film and uh, watched more movies than uh, probably anyone on the planet. Um, and so a love of film um, was with me um, since I was a little kid. And I went to law school, became a lawyer, didn't like that too much, went and uh, got my MBA. And when I was there, started thinking, uh, what do I really want to do? What am I really interested in? And let's chase that. And um, film was always uh, a passion. So I decided to uh, do anything I could to break into the industry. Took my first job at a place called Fireworks Entertainment, which then was part of the Ken West Empire um, worked there in business and legal affairs for two years, and then got a call from people I knew that had started a small uh, distribution outfit uh, based out of Toronto, but a North American distributor called Think Film, which uh, was about two years old at the time. A uh, great little independent uh, film distributor. Uh, had some great success, a few Academy Awards um, or nominations, one award, and a great team. Guys I've learned uh, a lot from, uh, Jeff Sackman and Randy Manis and Mark Hirschberg and Mark Ehrman. Um, great group of guys. Um, that business was sold to a guy named David Bergstein around 2008. And uh, around then, that's when I exited as well. Um, they had to divest themselves of their Canadian operations because they're not Canadian owned. And that's when I uh, came over to Entertainment One. So that was back in, uh, I think, 2008. So you've, yeah, seen, six, yeah, so you've seen and been through all of the, the changes that have gone out of, uh, at E1 and anybody who's been following the E1 story. It's just been this, this incredible growth uh, an incredible growth rate for any company. They've just been buying companies left, right, and center. What's it been like for you sort of just being in the middle of all that? It's been a really interesting ride. Um, you know, when I first uh, started looking at Entertainment One, I really had never heard of them other than as a wholesale distributor in Canada. Uh, they weren't on my radar at all. 
but uh, they had just hired Patrice Theroux, who uh, I knew from uh, from his Alliance days, and so I knew that they were you know building something big. Um, and right around that time, it was maybe about six months before, they had bought a company called Seville Pictures, which was owned by uh, David Rex Eagle and John Hamilton out of Montreal. And they used that as kind of the basis of their uh, Canadian film distribution operations. Um, and that's, you know, the story of Entertainment One is really growth through acquisition. So they bought a UK distribution company at the time called Contender. They bought a uh, distribution outfit in Benelux um, called RCB, which is now E1 Benelux. Um, and then I think the third one was Seville. And that's right around when I joined. And then since then, they've gone on to acquire um, a few TV production companies, a company out of Australia called Hopscotch, uh, most recently Phase 4 Films, uh, which is also a, a North American distributor. Um, and so, you know, the growth through acquisition continues. Um, some great choices. Um, it's uh, been a success for the most part. Um, and so we're now a very large organization with operations uh, around the world, including, you know, a, a television foreign sales division and a feature film foreign sales division. Um, and, so and we have you, our... Yeah, and you work primarily, or should I say exclusively, is that right, on the feature film side? It is. I mean, when I started, you know, when we were a bit smaller, I, I oversaw the business and legal affairs for the television foreign sales division as well, because it it is distribution and sales. Um, so, but that is no longer now, you know, our TV department and our film department are, are separate. Um, but I never was involved in our TV production side. Okay, so let's just let's just peel away some of the layers here, because in your position, you get to see a lot of deals. What? Just paint me a little bit of a picture in your eyes of sort of how you see at least the North American film market or industry from from your eyes, from the eyes of of, of, of E One, I guess. Uh, what is it? What is the market landscape looking like to you? I mean, it has changed quite a bit. I mean, obviously, the new technologies, um, disruptive technologies, have changed things quite a bit. When I was, I guess, starting in the film business, I mean, fireworks was more of a, a TV production uh, unit. Um, but since I was, when I was at Think Film, I mean, there was a lot more ways to get your films out there um, through traditional methods, and so there really was a path. Um, of distribution from theatrical and um, through home video and onto TV exploitation, which was, you know, those were really the three cornerstones. And that was back when the video business was still robust. There was still lots of rental business with companies like Blockbuster in the market. And obviously, as I'm sure all your listeners know, that's changed quite a bit over really the past, I'd say, four years. Um, you know, VOD has come in very strong. Um, the SVOD business um, with Netflix and you know other minor competitors in that space uh, has come on very strong and has really changed um, the landscape for independent films. You know, I don't think it's changed that much for the studios, um, other than you know the, the physical business um, really in decline. But you know, they make large films. They distribute them worldwide. Um, they own their own distribution outfits in, in most territories. And, you know, they've managed that transition quite well um, for their big tentpole films. 
for the independent space, it's quite different because, you know, you're relying on, um, you know, revenue streams from all of these different platforms to be able to justify uh, what you're spending to acquire a film. And, you know, when those, when there's changes and uncertainty, it becomes a lot more difficult to um, justify um, certain acquisitions when you don't see the downstream revenue, you know, uh, as robust as it used to be to be able to cover that. So there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. Um, there's a lot of, you know, producers are, are, go, are trying to go direct with their films and trying to go to direct platforms, um, which is not easy uh, because of the, you know, amount and volume of product that is, that is, that's in the marketplace. So it's changing. Um, you know, the one thing that doesn't change, which is the great thing about the industry, is that there's always talented people with great stories to tell out there. So we continue to see, uh, you know, fantastic scripts. There's lots of talent out there. Um, it's just there may not be the business model there once was to support some of these independent films. So uh, as a uh, a distributor looking to acquire content, we're certainly a lot more selective um, than we used to be because the revenue streams are not as certain as they used to be. Do you, when you're looking at a film, are, are you putting the analysis of the film through, I'm just going to say, a fairly complicated or uncomplicated algorithm to determine what the estimated downstream revenue is? I mean, when you've got so many different places where a film can make revenue from, how detailed in your analysis is, okay, we're going to get X dollars from, you know, Netflix, X dollars from uh, DVD, X dollars from, like, just just kind of walk me through the thinking process um, on the business side when you analyze the acquisition of a film. Sure. I mean, I, I guess there's two things. I mean, one, and that, again, is one of the great things about this industry is that it is art as much as it is business. And that's um, from the business side, it's an art because there are no clear cut answers and no one ultimately knows how a film is going to perform. If people knew that, you know, we'd all be have very easy jobs and we'd all be very wealthy. Um, but that's the great thing about the business is that it, it, there's a there's an alchemy to it. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and it's not an easy thing to predict, uh, consumer taste. And sometimes it's timing and sometimes it's just that right magic with the right cast or right director. So, you know, we do our best creative analysis we can. We have a great team of uh, people on our acquisition team who are reading scripts all the time, who, um, are looking how other films perform in the marketplace and are trying to understand whether this is a project that will resonate with consumers. And so once we, you know, at least are on board with the creative side, then we do do a very, I think, sophisticated uh, business analysis where we do try to predict, you know, and it all starts with box office. Again, not every film goes into theaters, but that's generally, you know, we're mostly a theatrical distributor, so we concentrate mostly on films that will have a theatrical life. And we do, you know, it starts with what, how well do we think this is going to perform at the box office? And from there, we have models that we run it through to try to predict what we think that relates to in terms of VOD revenue, what that means for physical video, and what that means for our TV exploitation, you know, down the road, and what's its value as a as library content, you know, part of our, our, our vast library. And... You know, we walk through that analysis and we see what does that uh, mean for us. And, 
ultimately it, it, it uh, sheds light on how much we think we can afford to pay for the film to buy it um, and ensure that we're still able to make some margin on it. Obviously, we're not in the business of buying films we think we're going to lose money on. So sometimes you have scripts that are you know, very tight and amazing creatively, but they just are too niche uh, or we think maybe too expensive for what we think the downstream revenue would be. And so, you know, we have to pass on those projects or maybe suggest to producers, um, you know, how they would have to bring down the budget to make it uh, viable, at least through us. Um, but, so, you know, to say it's a science would, 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 would be untrue. I mean, it really is ultimately sometimes gut um, has an element to it. And, um, you know, and, and I should say also, you know, we're buying completed films and films that aren't made yet. So, you know, clearly when a film is completed and you're out at a festival like the Toronto Film Festival that just completed and you're out looking for um completed films on the market, you generally know what you have and it's a lot easier to predict um, how it's going to perform in the marketplace. But, you know, the challenge there is that every other distributor competing for that same project sees the same thing that we do. So it becomes more difficult to kind of find something that no one else sees. Uh, when you're talking about pre-buys, which is, you know, we're, we're getting um, scripts with maybe just a director attached, sometimes with maybe one key talent uh, attached and trying to uh, assess from there. In those situations, you can find things in that, that other people maybe aren't seeing yet um, and taking it off the market early and um, hoping that it turns out the way you expect it to turn out. But obviously a much, much riskier proposition when you're not, you know, you don't see the finished product, could be a first-time director, um, could be um, a great script and a great director, but the casting just doesn't come together the way you were hoping. And sometimes everything comes together the way you're, you were expecting, but the film just doesn't turn out the way you had hoped. Um, and the market just doesn't receive it the way you were hoping. So a lot riskier, but uh, the rewards are, are clearly greater when you are um, buying stuff early. You know, I was listening, just because you mentioned the uh, Toronto Film Festival, uh, to one of the industry, industry sessions uh, that was actually posted online, uh, at, uh, you can, which you can actually watch this on YouTube, uh, uh, the, the TIFF industry uh, sessions on YouTube, uh, Bob Burney was doing a discussion of uh, strategy and theatrical distribution. And he said something very interesting, and I want to get your take on this. Uh, this summer's box office, there were a lot of independent films like Begin Again, for example, that were in theaters, platform releases. They were in theaters for a long period of time, and they did. And, and he listed off three, four, I think five different films that similar to Begin Again that did very well in the box office and were platformed. What he was also suggesting was that there was actually room in the marketplace right now for strong, executed, independent films more so than actually had been distributed this year. When you're sitting down and thinking about sort of what films you're going to pick up and whether there's room in the marketplace, um, the suggestion was, at least from Bob, was that there is currently room in the marketplace for more independent drama and independent, or not specifically drama, but just independent films to actually get out there and find an audience. What's your take on that right now in terms of how much actual, you know, how much sponginess is there right now in the market for uh, for you to go and actually put films out there in the market? Or do you see that there's really a, a cap or on the ceiling of the amount of films that are available to, to get out there? 
I mean, it's again, the film business is always difficult to predict, and it and it is cyclical. Um, it, it definitely has been a, a, a difficult summer at the box office, and not just for independent film, but for studio films as well. And you know, if you ask me, I think the real reason for it is that there wasn't such high quality content as there was last year. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to you know, good films will find an audience and will perform, and films that are uh, not as strong will not will not perform as well. And I think it's just been a, a weak year creatively um, for film. Um, and I think you know we are struggling with um, the competition of television, which has come on so strong recently and such great content, um, different than maybe how how it was five years ago, where you're having you know film. Uh, you know, once you have David Fincher directing and you're watching the Emmys and Julia Roberts is appearing at the Emmys, you know that the, the tide has shifted. So, um, and that shift is you know a consumer shift as well, where people are. Um, very happy to take in, you know, 22 hours of uh, of a show as opposed to a two-hour film. So I, I think that has something to do with it. Um, you know, I think it is a quality issue, and I think you know you have seen summers before where there's been some smaller independent films that have come out at the right time, where everyone is bored with all these summer tentpole films. And it does leave a, a you know a big gap in the market that that um, can be filled. We had a film this year called um, F Word, which came out as What If in, in the U.S., which you know hit at that August point. Which um, again, there wasn't much other product out there. Certainly not romantic comedies, which tend to do well uh, during the summer. So that 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 found its place. Um, did, but, you you know, you're, that, did you find, out of curiosity, did you find that the retitling of the film, because the film was the F word and what if, as you mentioned, so you had two different titles in two different markets, just purely curious, did that affect the distribution of the film at all? Or do you feel that it had an impact? I don't think in Canada. I mean, it had been set up for a long time in Canada. It appeared at the Toronto Film Festival the year before. Um, so it was a known quantity. I think it had gotten a lot of press at the time. Um, uh, it had, uh, you know, a good cast. Um, so, and the U.S. marketing on it didn't bleed that much into Canada. It was, it wasn't a huge um, 2000 screen release in the U.S. Where often it's you're just bombarded in Canada with the spillover of the marketing expense in the U.S. Um, also, I think F word is a much better title than than what if. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't use the title in the U.S. I think they wanted to as well. It was a, an MPAA issue. Um, they're a lot more um, Puritan, I think, when it comes to language in, in the U.S. than we are in Canada. C- CBS Films distributed that in the States. Is that correct? That's right. That's so, right. So just out of curiosity, how come you didn't? Why didn't we change the title? No, why didn't you distribute it in the U.S.? You've got full-on dis- U.S. distribution. Was that a financial reason? Uh, I'm just cu- just curious. I mean, we do. You know, our U.S. business is a bit different than uh, how we operate in our other territories where we're dealing with large um, blockbuster films. I mean, we distribute all Lionsgate content and Summit content in Canada. That means, you know, we're out there uh, distributing The Hunger Games and Twilight franchise and Red and Now You See Me. Um, you know, we have deals with Relativity Media. So, we, you know, we have some, some, some high-profile, high-budget content. Uh, our U.S. business is different and is actually um, going through a transition period now um, with our purchase of Phase 4 and Barry Meyerowitz um, coming on to head our U.S. 
um, division. So, you know, we did have a smaller um, theatrical arm in the U.S. where we were going for smaller independent films that we could release into the marketplace, often leveraging what we were doing in the rest of the world um, for our U.S. business. Um, but we've, you know, changed tack. Um, we're not going to be looking um, at the theatrical market as strongly as we were, other than to support um, maybe more ancillary business. I mean, the advent of this whole uh, day and date VOD release or, you know, VOD just prior to a small theatrical or just following a theatrical is, is the model we're going to be looking at um, going forward. And Actually, let me, know, just, let me stop you right there because that's actually really interesting. Why? Why is that the model that you guys are choosing to move forward with? You know, the U.S. is a very crowded marketplace. In our other territories, we enjoy um, being a much bigger fish in smaller ponds. In the U.S., it's, you know, there's a lot of fish, and including a lot of our suppliers. Um, so it's not so easy to acquire films um, for the U.S. that are going to cut through. Um, and it's very expensive to release in the U.S. What you can do in, uh, in other territories around the world, you know, pales in comparison to what it, what it costs to release a film theatrically in the U.S. And as, again, a lot of your listeners probably know, the, you know, it, it, the world is littered with, with failed U.S. theatrical distributors. Uh, it's a very expensive game. One or two misses can, can, you know, take down a, a company completely. So it's uh, it's high reward but high risk game, and it just didn't fit. I don't think with our overall global strategy, where we are um, looking to be top distributors in our in our market. So, you know, Phase Four has a, has a great business. Um, uh, you know, Barry Myrowitz is a very very smart operator in that space, uh, and so we're not you know swinging for the fences as we do in some of our other territories like Australia and UK and Canada. Um, it's a lot more of a singles doubles business, um, but with great margin and, you know, with great deals with VOD providers, great relationships with retailers. Um, I, I, and it's, it's a good strategy, I think for us in the U S. So let's, let's get into just some things that are just some practical elements that, uh, certainly filmmakers who are listening to this can think about when they're, uh, working on selling their film to a distributor. So now this is, this is the part of the show. Richard, I'm going to have to ask you to give away a few tricks of the trade. <laughs> what things should filmmakers be looking at specifically when they're act- entering into contracts with distributors to, uh, I don't necessarily say protect their interests, but for lack of the word, for lack of a better word, I'm kind of angling for, you know, what are the important things that filmmakers don't often look out for that they should, things they should ask for. Uh, uh, I mean, you've seen a million contracts and contracts can get very confusing. And Lord knows anytime a filmmaker is, you know, entering into a contract with a distributor, these things are big, big documents. And so uh, I'd love to get your take on just, you know, the, the big picture business points uh, that would be important for filmmakers to to think about uh, when when they're doing deals. Yeah, I mean it's a good question. You know, uh, it's not always easy dealing with a distributor. Um, there's often a uh, power imbalance um, in that you know no one film is make or breaking is making or breaking our business. So we're on a, a portfolio basis, and you have filmmakers who may have put you know half their life uh, into a film or a good number of years and a lot of sweat, and it's their life that film, and um, 
you know, have often made great investment and have um, gotten investment from equity investors who have who, who have come on board who are looking to get uh, repaid and hopefully return on their investment. And you know, without distribution, it's it's very difficult to uh, to earn that back and, and make a profit for producers. So. You know, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, you know, um, professional representation does help tremendously. Someone who's been through it before and knows how to navigate the waters and has relationships. So um, whether it's uh, an agency in the U.S., obviously, you know, people like CAA, if you can be part of their, uh, in their barn, um, it's quite helpful because they, they do know how to navigate those waters and eke out the best deals for producers. Another one is a, is, is a strong foreign sales agent. Um, again, often you'll, you'll just, I mean, if you can even unload the risk on, on a foreign uh, sales rep who will invest in the film and take on the rights themselves, that's, you know, lucky to have. Um, more often than not, they're not putting up money uh, up front and will just sell what they can, take a fee, and then the rest would, would flow back. But obviously for us, working with someone who's sophisticated, uh, working with a with a, um, a seasoned sales agent makes our job a lot easier because the, the agreements are complicated. You know, I think our standard acquisition agreement probably runs about 20, 20 pages, uh, and that's short. I just got a, a studio a distribution agreement recently that was 75 pages and dense, you know, with defined terms all over the place. I mean, it, it's not e- easy for even someone like me who's had a lot of experience to sometimes sift through these these agreements. Um, so I think really the key is not to, I don't think, sweat the small stuff and to really concentrate on the commercial deal. Um, obviously, getting as much money up front um, is advisable, um, you know, because in order to see uh, money coming out from the distributor when we send what we call overages, which is once we've taken our fee and recouped our expenses, uh, you know, the balance generally goes back to the, the rights holder. Um, you know, that can take some time. Uh, we have to put it in theaters. We have to collect from the theaters. We have to put it on video, uh, collect receipts, recoup all of our expenses. So sometimes it's, you know, two years later when um, a producer will start to see money out of what they call the back end. So, you know, as much money as you can get up front, um, obviously the better, and that takes care of a lot of the woes because you don't have to worry about sometimes the small print that's in there because you've really um, gotten what you need up front, and then there's always hope for, for more out the back end. Um, you know, it's, um, it's okay. I was putting on the spot, Richard. Well, no, I mean, you know, it's, there are a lot of standard terms when, you know, there's lots of things that can be negotiated, the level of fees that a distributor takes, the amount of the advance, how long they get the rights for, um, what kind of involvement, uh, producers can have ongoing in terms of creative control or even what we call meaningful consultation, which means that, you know, the distributor will at least have conversations with you about the direction they're going to take with the film. Um, you know, final cut is something that a lot of producers want to hold on to distributors sometimes push to have that because, you know, in our minds, we do know what will work best in the, in the marketplace. Um, not that, you know, we're not really the kind of company that goes around cutting up films. Um, we do, we do trust creative. Um, but you know, that's something that, that producers, um, want to hold on to very tightly. Um, 
you know, and then there's there, there, there is a lot of nitty gritty to it. Things like uh, just for an example, uh, a reserve on on video. So you know, there are some distributors that will say we'll report to you all the all, all the money we've made on your film, but we're going to hold on to a bunch of it for a certain period of time until we're sure that you know a lot of these videos that we've sold into the marketplace aren't coming back to us. Uh, in returns. I mean, as you know, anytime you buy something at a store, you're you're allowed to go back and return it. The same thing actually goes for a retailer. They can buy a bunch of inventory and it's not selling and they can just return it to us um, sometimes a year later. So, you know, we hold a bunch of money in reserve um, until we know what the, our net net sales will be so that we're not paying out money, then having a bunch of returns come in, having to pay back the retailers for those returns and then not having the money um, uh, to do that. And so, you know, sometimes distributors will say they can hold that reserve indefinitely, uh, until they're feel comfortable that it's time to release it. Um, others say that if we find out that we, there, there may be a dispute, uh, or we've been sued that they can just put a freeze on all revenues and basically hold everything in reserve until they feel comfortable uh, distributing it. So, you know, if you have good lawyer um, who's experienced in film distribution contracts, uh, looking at those provisions, there are standard asks that they would ask for. You don't always get them, um, but generally distributors aren't going out on first blush with an agreement that is, um, you know, as perfectly balanced as, as it could be. Um, and it's often up to uh, producers, counsel, and, and representatives to be able to move that needle um, a little bit more. So, uh, for, first of all, I, I think it's very, very well put. We, we also had, uh, just for people who are listening, one of the first episodes on the show, we had, uh, I don't know whether you've, you've, you've read this book, but it's called Movie Money is, is the name of the book. We had a gentleman by the name of Stephen Sills on the show, um, and that was episode number six. Really interesting. First of all, I recommend anybody who's interested in that conversation on what Richard is talking about here to go and check out the book Movie Money. You can also listen to Steve. Stephen Sills, which was episode six, uh, who wrote that book, and he was a—he's he's a forensic accountant for Hollywood Studios. Just fascinating stories. Uh, but let me let me come back to um, uh, Richard. What you were saying before about just the 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 change between the—I guess—the the move away from DVD because you're talking about. You know, at least at length there about the, the the DVD reserves. And my question is, well, okay, well, is DVD really a major part of your business now? And how much are you actually thinking about uh, digital as being sort of the major push for when you buy products? So, are you looking at product and going, okay, well, this is going to be, you know, a, a Comcast title. This is a title for Netflix. Or this is a title for. I mean, are there are there mainstays in the digital world right now that are just way more important to you than the DVD business. I mean, that's very true. Um, you know, it's been staggering how quickly the physical video market has been declining. Um, and unfortunately the VOD business is on, is on the rise and it's growing, but not, you know, the, the growth rate doesn't match the decline rate on, on physical video and, you know, our margins on physical video, um, were higher. Um, and so everyone is, adjusting. Um, and VOD is, I mean, at least from our perspective, we're not seeing it so much as a platform specific and 
I mean, other than Netflix, which which is different. But in terms of, um, you know, whether it's Comcast or in Canada, whether it's Rogers or Shaw or Telus, I mean, that it really just turns on what. Um, service has your consumer signed up to who's providing their cable um, so we don't we're not certainly not looking at buying phones saying this one would be a great one for Rogers and this one would be a great one for Shaw because um, you know we, we release them in the same way really as we did with physical video which is getting it out to as many platforms and, and in many storefronts as you can and uh, you know giving consumers access and hoping that consumers and that these platforms you know, push titles and have systems that that promote titles on their services, or at least make it easy to find. Um, but you know, it's not as easy searching for titles in a digital world as it was when you you know went for a stroll through uh, your local video store and seeing you know uh, front-facing uh, artwork. Um, and being able to really just move around and having uh, curated sections w- w- within the video store. Oh, it's it's uh, horrible, actually. I was just last night. I was looking for a title on uh, on, on on iTunes. You know, they, they've got their top fifteen titles or twenty titles up there at the top. And there was a film that I wanted to see, but I for, kind of forgot what it was. But I knew there was like a film that I wanted to see, and it just wasn't there anymore. So now I'm going to thinking about okay, well, what film did I want to see? Then I got to go search for the film to find the film because it doesn't necessarily even show up in the top fifty anymore. It's really, really challenging. If you don't have a film that's right there in front of you, it's even for the studio movies, of, of which this film that I was looking for was a studio movie. It's just, it's incredibly difficult to get any kind of notice anymore. It's very true. It's very true. I mean, you know, there's converses to all that. I mean, the digital world also brought us Rotten Tomatoes. So it's a lot easier to find out about um, films that people love and to find uh, even on through social media to cut through in maybe a way that serves consumers better, which is, um, you know, not being thrown off by what's on the video box and some star that you really like that you know nothing about. And there's really no way to find anything about to having almost instantaneous information about how good a film is. If you trust others opinions, um, both critical and, you know, your own social network, um, around you. So, you know, in some ways, it allows the cream to rise to the top um, maybe more easily than it did in the old days where it was a bit more opaque. Um, But for those, you know, maybe middle-of-the-road films or films that got very little marketing, um, smaller independent films, it's incredibly difficult to cut through Um, unless you're doing, you know, grassroots or, or... working through, you know, really good publicity without spending a lot of money. And then you're right, even when you do spend a lot of money, you know, you're just a line item in you know, on the VOD service um, uh, along with every other film. Um, so it, it is difficult to cut through. And that's why we find, you know, the theatrical model to be so important because it does help to set up the life for a film, um, you know, for its whole life, which is, you know, for the next 20 years. If something does well theatrically, get some critical acclaim, get some commercial success, um, you know, some fan support, which is nothing's better than having an engaged fan base, then, um, you know, it really sets up well through your VOD and onto your pay TV and, and TV exploitation and look, you know, Netflix has, has turned everything on its head. I mean, everyone knows that. Um, it's become um, a, a very compelling model for consumers. 
um, where there's so much content there for, for just one low price of $7.99. Um, and people, I think, are waiting more and more for content to you know, hit those services and are perhaps spending less on things like VOD, which we were hoping was, was going to you know, just replace video. People aren't buying them anymore. They'll just rent them. Um, but I think with Netflix being so, you know, the window starting so quickly after um, video release in some cases, um, it's becoming more difficult, certainly. So this is an uninteresting question then. Uh, as we're talking about this this subject, I'm wondering whether E1 has ever done a deal with a producer that has actually done their own uh, theatrical through, say, a theatrical on-demand platform like a, a Gather or a Tug, something like that, where they're taking the film out, they're platforming it themselves uh, across the U.S., because that's where these uh, these technologies exist right now for filmmakers to to use and then come back in to distributor and say hey look we just did our own theatrical release have you ever done a deal like that do you feel that that doing something like that would in fact give them uh more leverage or help the balance in the negotiation because they brought out this awareness uh, to a larger audience Uh, what's your take on that i mean we haven't seen a lot of that because again we are we are dealing with often you know higher budget content um but, uh, you know, again, the, the riskiest part um, financially is probably the theatrical release, um, especially when a product is unknown. So if a filmmaker is able to, you know, put together some money to mount a theatrical release and build an audience themselves, and, you know, we can look at the box office numbers and we can see how it's tracking and we can see what the reviews have been like, um, both on, on social media and um things like Rotten Tomatoes, and we know what we have, then um, in some ways it's a very safe bet um, to say, you know, sure, we'll capitalize on all this uh, money that you've invested in marketing and building an audience. And if the audience is there and there's, um, and we can help um, find that audience through our platforms and through our platform relationships, then I, I could definitely see that as something that we, we would be interested in. You know, again, particularly, you know, I think in our U.S. operation, the way I described it recently about um, the shift we're taking, I mean, that, I think that would work very well with that model um, because we do have very strong ancillary business and we, we really are uh, able to, you know, get things into Redbox, get them into Walmart, um, get them onto Netflix, and help a producer who has something good um, get it out there. So, you know, I think it would, I don't think it would work as well uh, on our Canadian business, for example, where, again, you know, we're distributing um, big budget content through through large studio partners in the U.S. Um, we don't, I'm sure there are distributors in Canada out there who um, would benefit from that and, and um, who could take that on. It's probably not Entertainment One in Canada. So just just to give our listeners a little bit of a, and also myself, because I'm, I'm curious now, what is the, the scope in terms of the number of theatrical releases in North America uh, that you guys take on per year? Um, in Canada, I, and it's, you know, we, um, at once, we, we were Entertainment One, and there was another company called Alliance Films, who I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Uh, we acquired Alliance Films. It's about two years ago now. Um, so they obviously had a whole slate of films in their pipeline, and we had a whole slate of films in our pipeline. And you put, you know, them together, and, and it was I 
think, I don't know the exact numbers, we probably had over 100 theatrical releases last year in Canada. That's probably too much for the marketplace. Um, and again, it's just because we had both had pipelines and it's probably going to normalize, I don't know, probably somewhere around 80 films a year. Um, I don't includes, know the exact numbers. But that includes, just to be clear, the studio output deals that you have with like Relativity and Lionsgate and that kind of stuff. That's right. So that's if, right. You, and then, if, if you pull all the output deals out, What's left for the filmmaker that's that that's coming to uh, that's coming to E one thinking that E one might be a, 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 a good home? Yeah, I mean we're always looking for good pickups. I mean those are um, you know particularly finished films that we think are are really good. If we can get them at the right price, we're, we're definitely always looking to to round out our schedule. Um, you know, there probably is room for 10 to 20 good acquisitions in a year. And I should say, and we haven't really touched on this, is um, not to necessarily put them in a, in a separate bucket, but we're obviously very active in Canadian film. Um, as, again, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, to tap into Canadian funding sources uh, with telefilm and with tax credits, et cetera, you, you do need to have a Canadian distributor on board, uh, which is, I think, smart from their perspective because they don't want to be investing money in films that don't have a chance of reaching an audience. So um, they do want to be investing in films where there's some chance of getting uh, the equity back um, and having uh, a distributor who understands the market and is probably best placed to know whether this is something that the market will, will accept. Um, they do look to have a, a Canadian distributor on board. So we're involved in a lot of those productions. We see tons of scripts um, from Canadian producers, Canadian acting as co-producers, often with uh, you know a, a UK co-producer or German co-production, French. And those are, none of those are coming from our output partners. Those are all films that we're looking at uh, at script stage and um, you know trying to bring them to market. So there's, I would say there's more, you know, there's lots of room for Canadian producers um, on the uh, producers just producing uh, out of the U.S. Um, we're, we're always looking for good content. So we're just about out of, out of time. Uh, one last Alrighty. question. I know it goes, it goes by quick. Uh, one last question for you. If you've got any just parting words of advice just from uh, your perch in the business, what, what would you uh, like to impart on our listeners as sort of a final thought? Um, you know, relationships are very important and it's important to, to be out there, I think, and um, trying to meet uh, people in the distribution business who are the gatekeepers, um, which is oftentimes acquisition executives. And, you know, we do want to work. We, I mean, content is king, but people who are professional and know how to deliver a film, bring it in on time, um, understand the distributor's role in the business and understand their role and what we bring to the table and what they bring to the table and um, how those two are separate. Um, people who really understand and make it easy for uh, a distribution company to acquire their films. They, they have all their elements together. Um, they've done all of their legal homework so that, um, you know, the paperwork is in place. Um, I think that gets you a long way. And also, you know, as much as you can get out there and understand from acquisition executives, what kind of product are we looking for? What's the market? What, uh, what What's going on in the market? What kind of films uh, are, are, are performing? Um, I think that is really the best advice I, I, I could give producers. 
Thank you, Richard. And appreciate your time today. This has been a lot of fun. And that's it for our show today. Thanks for coming on, man. Thanks so much, Jesse. I appreciate it. And there you have it. That was it. Episode number 47. You can check out the show notes if you like over at crafttruck.com backslash BOF 47. And uh, that, that was really cool. A lot of really interesting insights there from Richard. And uh, I wanted to just point out a couple things that I think will be uh, helpful for you or interesting for you if you're listening to uh, this episode. And you've made it this far. Thank you. Um, there are a few episodes that I want to draw your attention to because Richard mentioned them uh, in the podcast uh, tangentially, but it just so happens to have overlap with other episodes that we've done here on the show. The first, of course, being Movie Money with Stephen Sills. Uh, I mentioned that. That's episode number six uh, over at crafttruck.com. And I also want to point out uh, that we did an episode with Mark Ehrman. Uh, Mark Ehrman, who uh, Richard mentioned, uh, was uh, somebody that he previously worked with over at Think Film. We interviewed Mark uh, at episode 19. So if you go to crafttruck.com slash BOF19, you'll be able to check out our episode with Mark. That was also a super interesting episode. Uh, Talks a lot about publicity and distribution and the value of a theatrical release. And just two other quick things that I think are worth pointing out, uh, as we did speak briefly about the theatrical on demand model uh we had interviewed the ceos of both tug and gather on the show previously uh so you can go to just if you go to crafttruck.com uh just even the business of film uh drop down there you'll see all these episodes but we had nicholas gonda on the co-founder of tug and um he was awesome very well spoken gentleman uh and uh also the ceo of uh gather uh which is scott Klosserman. also very very interesting guy i uh, just want to say thanks again to richard for his time today on the show uh and uh again just if you have the chance to hop on over to itunes and leave us a review that would be awesome so we'll be back next week and uh, I'm trying to line up a real special treat for you for episode number 50. So uh, stick around. Three episodes to go. Excited for that, Mark. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care, everyone.